Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everyone. You may think that confidence is something that comes naturally. Either you're born with unwavering self-esteem or you're not. But according to today's guest, Lydia Finette, that couldn't be more false. Lydia is a globally recognized speaker and charity auctioneer. And she says you can train yourself to be more confident. In fact, just a few strategic hacks can help you release nervous jitters, make an impact, and help you own the room. I'll go ahead and assume that everyone wants to feel more confident, no matter who you are or what stage of life you're in. So this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. We'll also chat about the art of persuasion and how to know if someone's lying straight to your face. Let's dive in. Lydia, welcome. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm so excited to be here. It's great to have you. You have such a fascinating background. So let's start there. Tell us about your road to becoming an auctioneer. Well, it's always so funny to tell people that I'm an auctioneer because they have two questions. First of all, do you speak really quickly? And I always say I do speak quickly, but I'm not a a cattle auctioneer, so it's different. (laughs) So just know that. Um, And then the second thing that they ask is, what's the most expensive thing you've ever sold? And it's always an interesting question because I am trained as a charity auctioneer. I do take commercial auctions, but my entire career has really been built on charity auctioneering, which is different than art auctioneering. So I'll back up even further. I read an article in college about Princess Diana's dresses being sold at a place called Christie's Auction House. I read it in Vanity Fair magazine. This was 1997. I'm not even sure that you could find this article if you tried, but I will never forget reading it because I just thought it was the most amazing world. It was all about the people who worked in the auction houses and how there was this gorgeous black tie event that took place on Park Avenue uh, at a magical place called Christie's Auction House. And to me, art was always something that was in museums. It wasn't something that I thought of as a business, and it certainly wasn't something that had ever really crossed my mind. But this, like many things in my life, just captivated me. And I became obsessed with working at Christie's, which was not something that my parents had done or knew anything about. And frankly, it wasn't really something that I knew anything about. And like most things I found in life, you really have to just keep talking about it. So I did, and I eventually got the internship coordinator's information, stalked her until I got an internship. And then once I arrived, I saw auctioneers up close and personal. And there are two different types of auctioneers. Art auctioneers are auctioneers who are standing on stage selling Picassos, selling expensive furniture or jewelry. Charity auctioneers are people who get on stage late at night when nobody really wants them up there and they sell things that people don't really want for charity. And I don't know why, but I just loved the idea of charity auctions. It's almost like improv, but also kind of like just being thrown on stage with a piece of paper with four lines and then you have to make $5 million. It's a wild world. And as soon as I saw it, I became completely obsessed. So I tried out to be an auctioneer. And I'd been at Christie's about four years and I made it and I just started taking auctions and I would get on stage anywhere and everywhere I could. 
And it was practice over many, many years that got me to the place where I am now, which is over 20 years doing it. And as of this year, I've raised over a billion dollars for nonprofits around the world, which is incredibly exciting and a big number, which has built a lot of buildings and helped a lot of people. And it's something I am so proud of. It's kind of hard to even even think about what that that amount of money can do for people. But there is literally nothing I love more than being on stage and auctioning off things for charity. Getting up on stage and auctioning things off for charity for many people listening would be the most frightening event of their life. Close to death. <laughs> it is close to death. This, this is where confidence comes in, which you have this great book on. And so let's talk about confidence and the role confidence has played in your life uh, and how you've built your confidence and the role it played in becoming an auctioneer? Well, we were talking about before the podcast started about this story I tell in my book on the second chapter, my dad's catchphrase in life was never give up. And that really applied to sports more than anything. Although I think he, he meant it in every facet of our lives, just never give up, just keep trying. And I played on three sports teams in middle school that never won a game in four years. And so I really got to test out that theory because as you can imagine, as a child, you think you're going to win, you know, you're still in the Disney, the Disney part of your life where there's always a beautiful, happy ending wrapped up with a bow. And there just never was for me. And there never was for any of the teams I played on. We just had a tiny school. And so I learned at a very early age what it meant to never give up and be okay if ultimately you didn't get what you thought you were going to get at the end of it. And that's something that over the course of my life has applied time and time again. I would say even with auctioneering, I got up on stage for many, many years, and I was not very good at what I was doing on stage. And I could tell that because the audience never paid attention. As I said, I'm a charity auctioneer. I get on stage at 10 o'clock at night. People have been drinking. Half the time, they don't even know there's an auction. And I would get up on stage and do exactly what I had been taught as an art auctioneer, which was to sell things using numbers, right? Using increments, like just going up rhythmically in increments. But when you're a charity auctioneer, you have to sell it. Like you have to get up there and sell the item, like a puppy that nobody wants at 11 o'clock at night. Like, what are you going to say that's going to make somebody buy that puppy at 11 o'clock at night? Hopefully lots of wine, but also there can be other tricks that you learn because it didn't work the time before. So I think that confidence is something that just happens because you've put yourself out there time and time again, and you realize it's not always going to be the way you think it's going to be, but you're okay with that. And you're strong enough to keep going back to the well. So how, how does one, you know, when I first read your book, it's very top of mind as we have two little, two little girls, children. And I think every, if you're a parent, you're saying, all right, you want your kids to be a lot, you know, confident, kind children and, and later adults. How does, how does one build confidence in our kids? You let them fail. You don't do everything for them. You don't get in front of them and clear the way so that their life is perfect because that's not life. I mean, I can say this, I'm in my 40s now. Life is not perfect. Things go wrong. Things that you could never foresee in life go wrong. What are you teaching your children if you're teaching them that life is perfect? You're not teaching them the way to live because they'll never have the coping skills when things go wrong to believe enough in themselves. You know, I remember um, one of my children, actually all of my children attended a school and it was part Montessori. And the woman who started the school used to say that you should never do for a child what a child can do for themselves. And I think in this age and in, in the way that we've been taught to parent or that we think we're supposed to parent, it's always about providing more and more and more for our kids, doing more and more and more for our kids. 
And I'm seeing a lot of my friends now, you know, I'll hear my kids say, oh, I'm really bored. I'm like, great. It's great to be bored. Figure it out. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Have a great time being bored. I grew up in Louisiana. My parents used to like close the door in the morning and send us out and be like, come back for lunch or find it at one of your friend's houses. And it was up to us to create these games and this magic. And I think that that's part of being confident too as a child is being okay to try new things and do things that aren't necessarily what you're supposed to be doing at any given time and and to be able to overcome that. And failure is a big part of that. Um, we just went to my son's Little League game and they told us pretty early on in the game that they weren't keeping score. And I said to my husband, I was like, it just seems like a waste. Like, what are we teaching these children? Like someone has to win and someone has to lose and disappointment is part of life, right? It's one of the many reasons why we moved from New York to Florida. They, they keep score in Florida when it comes they to sports. Score in Florida. They kept score. In Louisiana, I tell in the book that there was, it wasn't just kept score. I mean, we used to lose the basketball games like 52 to two. We had six players on our team and we would play, you know, public schools that had these massive, massive benches of people just waiting to play. And, um, no one ever said, keep your hands down. It was like, these girls are not only going to lose, they're going to lose really badly. <laughs> um, but it's okay. You know, we tried every single time. We got up there and we tried and tried and tried. And that's a part of it. How much do you think of as nature versus nurture with kids? I think there's both. You know, I think that some children come out. I mean, I have three, three kids and I can say that I think my daughters are very, very confident. And my son seems like he's a little more reticent in life. And he's always been like that. He's more hes more of an introvert. He's more like my husband. Uh, my daughters are more like me. And as a result of that, I think people might think that my daughters have more confidence. But my son's a confident kid. He just doesn't voice it as vocally. So I think we sometimes mistake what confidence looks like. Like confidence is not necessarily bravado. Confidence is just believing in ourselves and believing that we walk into a room in our own skin and we don't have to pretend that we're someone else to be there. And that's a huge part of confidence. You know, on that note, I heard the comedian Whitney Cummings once talk about the difference between self-confidence and self-esteem. And I thought it was so interesting. And she was saying how, you know, she was confident she could go out on stage and, and, and crack jokes and, and completely, uh, to, to, <laughs> and completely fail miserably. And she'd be okay with that and keep going. Uh, so she had confidence, she had self-confidence, but 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 suffered from self-esteem and self-worth. And there was a difference. I thought that was so interesting. What's your take on that? I think those two things are more linked. I truly believe that to have confidence, you do have to have self-esteem because you have to be willing to, in all facets, facets of your life, face negativity and criticism and rejection and failure. Those things are not easy. They take time to learn how to handle. Rejection never feels great, right? Nobody likes to be rejected. But as you get older, as you learn how to take it on, I think you also learn how to not hold it in. And that for me is what self-esteem is about as well. Like I think confidence and self-esteem have to be linked because if someone says something that you don't like, if you're strong enough on the inside and you have enough self-esteem, that's not going to touch you. You'll hear it. It'll bounce off of you. Whereas if you don't have that, I think it stays with you and then it eats at you over time. And that eats away at your confidence. Do you think boys and girls or men and women differ here? I think a lot of it comes from what we hear 
around us over the course of our lives. So I do think having grown up in the South as a woman at a different time, I do think that a lot of the things I thought I was supposed to do or could do were informed by society. Um, but I also had a dad and I, I'm one of four children. It's boy, girl, boy, girl in my, in my family. And my father was always and is a very strong presence. And I think more just because we didn't have a ton of time with four kids, it was just like all hands on deck. Like if Charles wants to play soccer, then Lydia, Andrew, and Hillary are also playing soccer and we're all going to play on dad's team. <laughs> so it was sort of a lot of being thrown into the mix. There was never a, oh, you want to try this. You can't because you're a girl. It was, you want to try this. Well, we don't really care. We don't have enough time. So we're going to all just do it together and you're going to learn it. And even if you're not good at it, you're still going to stay out here. So I think a little bit can be a little bit of life can be evened out in that respect. But I also think that you hear a lot around you of things you can't do. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. When I was at work as a, a woman in my 20s, there were a lot of references about like things that I would do or that things that I wouldn't do once I got married and have kids. Like These were conversations that were had sort of around me by my colleagues. And I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, one of my colleagues saying to me, well, you're never going to be able to take auctions now that you're pregnant. And I think depending on who you are, that could immediately close that door for you. You know, if someone said that to you, oh, I'm pregnant, so I can't do that. For me, because of the way that I was raised, that always makes me think, watch me. Um, and I mean, I literally was taking pregnant still. I mean, I was taking auctions until I was two weeks to delivery, like hugely pregnant on stage. And I almost did it in response to that, like, you can't do it. Um, but there's no there's no situation that I could ever think of that my brothers would be in where someone would be like, oh, you can't do that because of you're pregnant or you have a baby. Like those things I think can make you feel very different about your confidence as you get older. So I think that society does a good job of keeping you in your box and it takes a little more confidence as a woman to push out of that. On that note, I'm curious, did you have like a power move or a go-to in those days when someone was probably a little bit inappropriate inappropriate or sexist or tried to keep you in a box where you just, you, you had a go-to to put them in their place? You know, humor for me has always been the greatest solve. You know, I think I've always gone to a joke or something to just like push it off. Um you know, when I got on stage, my sort of power move was always that I had this gavel um, and I call it the strike method. Like I, ever since I started, I would go out and bang it down three times because I think a lot of people didn't realize why I was on stage, especially when I first started taking auctions because there weren't a lot of women out there taking auctions. So I would slam the gavel down so hard. I mean, I've like broken rings off of my fingers because I've hit it so hard on the, the podium. And that for me is sort of channeled that like, I'm in charge, here I am, it's indisputable, I'm supposed to be here. Um, but I think as it pertains to the other things that were said, that was always for me, I think a very Southern way of, of doing it is just, we always say you catch more bees with honey, you know? So it was, it was sort of like a joke and, and just like shoved it off. Like it didn't matter, but you know, I'm glad that people don't have to face that as much because it does take a toll on you time over time. Like you're not allowed to put yourself out there because you're a woman or you're not allowed to do this because you're a woman. Like you don't hear that anymore. Um, because you're not really supposed to hear that. People are just supposed to be able to do what they want with their lives and not worry about what other people think of them. What about, you know, let's say you're in a room or, or someone listening is in a room and, and maybe they're, this person's confident and they have to talk, but they're in a room where they're looking around and they're, and they're starting to lose that confidence, maybe because the people are so impressive, maybe they're, they're intimidating to some degree, maybe it's a, you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome. 
or maybe it's just a really loud room and they have to figure out how to really elevate their voice, a variety of, of things. Is there a go-to or uh, I, I like, I like the phrase power move. It brings me back to athletics. Like one can go to in, in a situation like that to kind of maybe psych themselves up or just uh, get control of the situation. Well, there are two things I would say. First of all, kind of going back to what I said about the strike method, I think we can all find that. You don't need to bring a gavel to do it. (laughs) In fact, I would suggest probably not bringing a gavel. But I do think that we all have the ability to conjure strength. And that's really what that gavel is for me. So I say to people, be intentional with what your strike method is. Think about what it is that makes you feel powerful. Is it something you say to yourself? Is it a movement that you do? I have a friend who, after she read my first book where I talk about the strike method, um, she says that every time she has a Zoom, she puts her hands under the table before she starts a presentation and taps it three times as if to say, here we go. Um, I think the most important part too is like whatever that mantra is, just remember you should never walk into a meeting or a presentation without having lined up the first sentence of what you're going to say, because that's where people really fall short. And, you know, if you see a nervous public speaker, it's often because they haven't really thought about what they're going to say. They think about the presentation, but they don't think about that connecting line. So for me, it's always gavel down three times. And then I say to the audience, good evening, everyone. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm so delighted to be here this evening. And then I usually throw in a joke. But that first sentence for me, it doesn't matter what is happening in the room. It doesn't matter if people are breaking plates or people are falling over. I can always say it the minute that gavel hits and it puts me at ease immediately. So even if you just need to have that one sentence that says, you know, hi, everyone, I'm Jason, and I'm really excited to be here to speak with you today. Something that easy can help you get into a place where your mind is calm. Because the interesting thing about public speaking is you're coming into a place where everything, all your nerves are channeled into that one sentence. So the minute you hit it, it's either I've just loved that and now I'm completely lost and I feel like I'm going to start crying, or you feel like you're in a place where you're really strong and you feel good about what you've said. So you know, come up with your mantra, walk in there feeling confident, big smile, shoulders back. This is my room. I own it say what you're going to say, and then just keep going. So getting to that point, how does, you know, so I'll take a step back. So we talk a lot about health on this podcast and things things that are easy, relatively easy to measure. You know, I can measure my heart rate right now. I can go do my blood work and, and do all sorts of testing to get some sort of sense of how I'm stacking with regards to my health. This one's a little bit trickier if one's listening although we might have an innate sense of how confident we are, in your view, how does one really know how I'm doing on a confidence level? I'll give you a great example. So I am very busy on Instagram. I love it. I think it's such a fun way to really put out what you're doing. And it's also free. I'll say that again, it's free marketing, guys. So just join it and don't think, don't overthink it. Um, You can also get some really mean comments on Instagram. And I luckily don't have that large of a following. So I don't get, I mean, most of the people I think either know me or know someone who I know. So I feel like maybe they feel like they can't say nasty things. But when I was on the Today Show recently with Savannah Guthrie, I got a screenshot of a picture of myself on the Today Show with literally the word eye roll above it from someone I knew. So the interesting thing is that would have five years ago put me in my bed crying for a day 
because I would have been like, I can't believe this is what she thinks of me. Obviously, she's sending it to someone else who knows me. So these people are talking about me behind my back. And instead, I looked at it and I texted her right back and I said, hey, I think you're going to have to resend this because I don't think it was meant for me with a wink. Because the end of the day, that has nothing to do with me. Like That's her issue. It's cool to be on the Today Show with Savannah Guthrie any way you look at it. And that to me, I, I actually called my sister afterwards and I said, you know, I talk about claiming your confidence and now I know that I fully claimed my confidence because I didn't even, it didn't even raise my blood pressure. I was like, oh, that's just jealousy in its most nascent form. And that has nothing to do with me, period. You know, you bring up Instagram and, and this is what I struggle with. I hear you. It, it, it is a tremendous platform to connect with people and expand your reach in a way that is unprecedented. On the other hand, specifically to that pl platform, it, it feels like a black hole. <laughs> it can be very vapid. I feel, I, I hope it disappears by the time our, our daughters are old enough to potentially, well, old enough to have a phone, which means when they're 18. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to try our best there. The oldest one's six. So we got some time. You know, I, look, I think we live in a superficial culture, unfortunately. You hear about attractiveness. Attractiveness definitely plays a role on in Instagram. You know, I, I think it's unfortunate, but it's real. What role do you think attractiveness plays in confidence? That's a great question. I think attractiveness plays a role in confidence if you're confident in yourself. If it doesn't, then it completely eats away at you. I mean, I was literally talking about this with a friend of mine past week. I was down in Florida and she was talking about an influencer who she knows very well, who's plus size. She has an incredible platform, almost a million, a million followers. And I follow her and I said, it's got to be hard because you see some of the comments on there. And she said, yeah, but she's so confident. Like she's so confident in who she is. And because she puts this out there, it makes her feel more confident because she owns who she is. And so I think we all have to understand that you have to find yourself attractive. You have to like what you see in the mirror. That's what's important. And social media is just, if you can take that and forget it and remember that it is a highlight reel, if nothing else, then you can take away from that what you will. But whether or not attractiveness plays something in confidence, like I've always believed that you have to feel, you have to feel attractive. You have to feel confident. It's not about what other people think of you. And until you forget what other people think of you and stop thinking about that, you're never going to feel confident, attractive or not. I mean, I have friends who are so beautiful who have absolutely no self-confidence. I have friends who have literally, I would not describe them as conventionally beautiful and what, what's, whatsoever who have more confidence than anyone you would ever meet. I think it all comes down to what's within. Right. I agree. I agree. I, I want to come back to failure. I think this is interesting. You know, th there are, you take, take two people and they may be on the same team, for example, and that team loses and loses and the other person rolls with it, is, is, is upset they're losing, but doesn't give up and, and goes on and eventually wins. And then the other person just is crushed and just complains, becomes part of the, the narrative, the victim. I, I remember personally, you know, I played, played all sports and I played basketball in college. And when I first got to Columbia, we lost a lot and it was brutal. We, we won later, but my coach would say, you have to, 
it's so easy. It's easy to win. It's very difficult to lose as a team and keep fighting. And you have to be very careful on his words. It was like the narrative. Is this going to be acceptable? Is this going to be part of the narrative? So on one hand, you want to be upset. You want to be slightly angry. You want to come back and, and win, but you don't want to point fingers. You don't want it to become your identity. And I, I learned a lot because eventually we did win. Um, but I think culturally where we are today, eh, kind of think being the victim can play a little bit on social media specifically, can become part of the narrative. So let's spend some time on, I guess this is a couple a couple part question. What separates, if failure is critical, you know, you had your dad in your ear, don't give up, don't give up. How, how should we rethink failure and how do we avoid letting ourselves fall victim to the, 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 the the victim narrative? Well, I think we all can choose to be a victim. You know, I talk pretty openly in the last chapter of my book about being in a pretty horrific car accident in October of 2021. And, you know, I fractured my spine. I broke seven ribs. My children had broken bones. My husband shattered his left wrist. I mean, it was about the worst nightmare you could imagine having. And I remember someone saying to us afterwards, you know, one of the things that has been so remarkable to see is how that you did not allow that victim mentality to get in. And there was one conversation in particular that I highlight in the book with a friend of mine who sat next to me a couple of days after the accident, after I'd had the first surgery, the internal surgery, but I hadn't had a spinal fusion yet, which was going to be the second surgery. And I was in a crazy amount of pain. And she started to cry and she said, I just can't believe that this happened to you. Like you have such a good family, you're such good people. And she started sobbing. And I, my reaction was so fast that it even surprised me. I just said to her, why not me? No one's life is perfect. This is not the way that any of us get to live life. Like there will be things that test us, some more than others. We can't allow ourselves to fall victim to that and then just sit in a black hole being like, why me, why me, why me? Why not me? And by the way, what do I get now? I get the example to show my children what it is like to come back from an injury where I could barely stand up for less than five seconds without blacking out from the pain. And I got to show them every day as I walked one inch further on that sidewalk to get to the end of a block that I've lived on for many years. And that used to be you know, an average part of my day walking to the end of the block. I could not even walk to the end of a block when I got home from the hospital. And now we went surfing in January. That is, in my opinion, the greatest way for us to test ourselves and to show ourselves and show other people that you don't have to lie down and take what, th what anything is thrown at you and just say, like, I'm done. We all have the choice to get up and go. You know, when I went down in the hospital to had the spinal fusion. I was downstairs. It was like one o'clock in the morning and I was waiting for the surgeon to come back and get me. And there was a woman who'd been there the night that I was admitted into the hospital. And I came in in hor horrific shape. I mean, they didn't know if I was bleeding out internally. My children weren't even at the hospital yet. We didn't really know what was going on. I was like in and out of shock. And so she'd seen me four days prior. And when they wheeled me down, I was waiting for her to 
go get the surgeon. And she came over and she's like, are you the mom who came in here on Halloween night? And I said, yeah. And she said, how are you doing? I said, I think I'm doing pretty well. She was like, <laughs> you don't hear a lot of people who are going in for a spinal fusion talk about the fact that they're doing well. She's like, but I'm going to tell you something. I see people who come in here who are 80 years old, who have no reason to be alive, but they have like a crazy positive attitude and they sail through their surgery and never look back. And she's like, and I have people your age who come in here with like a hangnail and they think that they're going to die. And it, they're their recovery takes so much longer than it should because they have chosen to opt out. And she was like, so stay with this positivity because this is what's going to get you better. This is what's going to move you forward. And I've never forgotten that. And I'll pass that along to anybody who is listening to this right now. Like there are going to be moments in your life that are hard, but you can choose to fight. You can choose to never give up. You can also choose to stay positive no matter what has happened to you and believe that you'll be okay. And I've seen it firsthand and I've done it firsthand. So I can tell you that and, and tell you that it's a really remarkable way to live life because you come through on the other side realizing how strong you are and how confident you can be. I love it. 100% agreed. Uh, I, I'm curious, in your view, how much of this is credited to all that losing? and your dad in your ear or is it you know what what are the other factors because I, I agree a lot of people would maybe not have bounced back as quickly as you did given the circumstances was it daily practice was it a spiritual practice was it your relationship i'm curious what do you think it was i think a lot of it was especially at the beginning we have surrounded ourselves with a really strong community. I like to say, like, to be confident, it's an individual process, but you have to be scaffolded by the people who are in your life, right? So when something terrible happens, they surround you. Like, we were propped up with love from our families and our friends after that accident, there's no doubt. But at the end of the day, the person who had to get up and walk that half block to PT was me. And I chose to do that. Like, from the hospital bed, I called the PT team and was like, I need to be here in two weeks because I need to start getting better for my children. Like I cannot be in this physical state anymore if there is the potential that I can be okay. So let's get, let's get to work. And I went in and I worked my butt off. So for me, it's about looking forward and not looking back and being like, why me? Why did this happen to me? And then it's about setting goals. You know, on the days where I would look in the mirror and be like, you know, totally scarred. I mean, my body is a disaster, as you can imagine now. I've had so many surgeries. and But I will say, like, I would look in the mirror on those tough days and be like, you know what? Last week at this time, you couldn't even get out of bed. This week, you can get out of bed by yourself. So what happens next week? And that's what I mean. Like Those practices of pushing myself forward, the same thing as being on stage all those years. Like, I wasn't good on stage. I got beaten up on stage because nobody listened to me for the first 10 years that I took auctions, but I kept going back. So what I would say is it is intentional because it is you putting yourself forward, whether it be like just setting goals in a week, week by week. What can I do this week that I couldn't do last week? And then also I'm, I'm spiritual in the sense that I deeply believe in God. You know, After that accident, one of the first persons I sought out in the hospital was the chaplain. I wanted to thank God that we were there and not be sad that we weren't. Or I wanted to thank God for my friends who showed up in such a major way and my family who moved in and took care of our children because my husband and I were both in the hospital. Like those things for me 
are what life is about. And I think that all of those practices help move us forward, whether they be spiritual, mental, physical, whatever they are, but we have to do them. So I'm curious, like what specifically do you think people should do daily who aren't facing a, a serious illness or injury who are just, you know, going about their everyday lives, they're fine, but they want to strengthen or build these muscles so that one day when they are faced with serious, serious adversity, they do have the confidence to get through it. Think about the things that you want to do in life or the things that you're scared of in life, because ultimately fear is what stops us in our tracks, right? So I'm going to use public speaking as an example, because we talked about that when we first started that, like getting on stage with a piece of paper is what people fear the most, right? So if you're scared of public speaking, what can you do to get better at it? Speak in public. There are probably opportunities if you're working in a corporate environment every single day, small opportunities to get on Zoom, to put your hand up for a panel, to put your hand up for a committee, something that will force you to speak in front of other people. And if you're a stay-at-home parent, PTA, it's an easy way to speak every single week. I think there's a meeting every single week at most schools for any kind of group activity. But what I say to people is if you're scared of something, make yourself do it. You don't have to do it in the big way. You don't have to get on stage in front of a thousand people tonight, but stand up in front of two or three people and practice speaking. Learn what it feels like to feel that adrenaline rushing in. Understand what it's like. And the next time, it won't be so bad. And then just keep doing it. And that's like anything. Exercise, like just writing a book. I mean, even things like that. I mean, you know, it takes time. One word is easier than thinking about writing an entire book. So start small. And in terms of confidence, the body, what role does the body play? I've heard anecdotally numerous times, posture, you know, when you're getting ready to speak, you, you kind of lower the shoulders, stand up straight, look up, be confident. Uh, what, what's your take on the body and the role? I am the biggest believer in taking care of your body. You know, even without speaking about being confident, just in terms of taking care of yourself, exercise, go for the walks, go for the runs, get on a bike, do something, move every day, because it's all connected. It's connected to your mental health. Obviously, it's connected to your physical health. So start there. Think of your body as something that you need, like a car, like anything to maintain and take care of every single day. So with that in mind, if you were talking about being confident, when you walk onto a stage, when you walk into a room, some of my easiest tricks are first and foremost, stand up straight and tall. If you're doing any kind of speaking, smile. It's so amazing to me how many times I watch people get on stage and they look so scary and scared. And then breathe, shoulders back, breathe in and out because breath is important. Otherwise you strangle your voice and it makes you just feel tight. If you have any, like if you're backstage or if you're ever in a place where you want to do public speaking and you're feeling really scared, I like to say that the most important thing to do is kind of move your energy out of your body because it's just adrenaline more than anything. I've seen it with some of the, you know, the biggest comedians, the biggest actors in the world. I'll go backstage with them before an auction and they're coming on. And it's funny to watch what happens in the minute before you go on because everybody's adrenaline comes in. So people start speaking quickly or you know, if they're clicking a pen, all of a sudden they're clicking a pen on hyperspeed. When I was trying out to be an auctioneer, I used to flip my hair back and forth. That was my nervous tick. So what I like to do now is if I get really nervous, I'll just bounce lightly on the balls of my feet just to keep the energy moving so that I don't feel like I'm stayed in one position um, and wiggle my fingers. Just like get your body flowing. It's the easiest way to get rid of those nerves. And then mentally, the thing to think about 
there was this great study that was done years ago where they talked about a study with a guy who was super nervous about public speaking and another person who loved being on stage. And they said to the guy who was really nervous about public speaking, so what do you not like about public speaking? He's like, oh, like right before I get on stage, I get so nervous, I get sweaty and I everything's shaking and I feel terrible and all this stuff. And uh, they said to the other person, so what do you like about being on stage? He's like, oh, the minute before I go on stage, it's that rush. It's that like shaky adrenaline that I get. And I feel kind of sick. And I know it's the same thing, right? So you bring the energy you want from the room. I get on stage late at night. If I get on stage and I look tired, the audience doesn't pay attention or they just look tired too. I get on stage like I've just won the prices right every single time I get up there. Like, good evening, everyone. I am so excited to be here. And I can tell just by looking at you that you do not feel the same way. And everybody's got to been on the joke. How, how much of it? I've always been curious about public speaking. It, you know, I, you, you always hear is, you know, people ask immediately, do I like this person? You know, how important is likability, that smile, the energy and versus I really love every word that's coming out of this person's mouth. Like, do I connect with them? Do I like them? Yeah. Well, I think it's a lot easier when the person who's on stage looks like they're having fun. You know, I'll get that a lot when I get off. People are like, you look like you're having so much fun. I'm like, I am. I had a great time. <laughs> Sorry, you guys don't have any cash left, but man, did I have fun on stage. So what I would say to anyone who does public speaking is, yeah, you. the first fear is that people don't like you when you get on stage. Well, guess what? If they don't like you, you don't ever have to see them again. It's probably an audience of people you don't know anyway. So don't worry about it. But second of all, Give them the likability factor from the minute you get up there. A smile is never going to kill you. And again, just put yourself in there in, in the shoes of someone sitting in the audience. If someone gets on stage and they are super low energy and they're quiet and they're not smiling and their deck of car or their, their PowerPoint presentation is 6,000 pages and it's very small spacing, I'm always like, if you are a person who's getting up to give a speech or a pitch or doing any kind of public speaking, Make it fun for the audience. Tell them a story. Sales is about story storytelling. Public speaking is about storytelling and bringing people into the world that you're creating from stage. It's not about you talking at them. It's about you having fun with them and making them have fun, no matter what the presentation's about. Is there a joke you go to when you can't find one that's appropriate for the setting that you just, you have a go-to joke? Well, what I always say when I'm on stage, because I'll do, I'm also a keynote speaker. So, you know, sometimes I'm doing a speech at eight o'clock in the morning and everyone's tired and I'll make a joke and no one laughs. And I'll be like, hey guys, I don't know if you know this, but that was a joke. It's okay. You can laugh. You're fine. You'll be okay. I know it. And it's funny because it makes people smile, even if they don't laugh immediately. And then later in the afternoon or the morning, I'll, I might have to rem remind them again. I'll be like, remember earlier, guys, when I was talking about how I was going to be cracking jokes up here? Like, you're killing my confidence because I cracked one and no one laughed. And now I've done a second one that I thought was really funny. Like, the bigger the joke on stage or the bigger the fail on stage, the bigger the joke. Like it's almost it's almost a great thing when something goes wrong because it gives you it gives you a moment to sort of be human with the audience. You know, if a phone rings in the middle of a presentation, everyone hears it. So an easy joke to that is, oh, tell them I say hi. My name is Lydia, by the way. I want to get on the speech list night. Like people love it when you talk to them because it's like you're taking away that that fourth wall between like me and you. It's like we're all human here. Let's have fun. Well, it's like the classic. I you know. Some people fear going to comedy shows because many comedians will pick someone out in the crowd and go to town. Yes, absolutely. That's usually me. <laughs> and I'm there for it. I'm like, what else do you want to say? So 
on having confidence, something I see and I, I, I struggle with when I have people on the show, you're not one of these people, but sometimes you meet someone and they're brilliant and, and they're just very smart and they're a subject matter expert and they speak with the same level of confidence on everything, whether they actually have the knowledge or not. Whereas some people who are brilliant and smart and experts will say, you know what, I'm not really sure on that one, or, or we'll use language that's a little bit more appropriate given their 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 skills or, or knowledge specific to that topic. And it's and it's just tough when you have people who are just so sharp and have that confidence, and you can't like, is he really telling? Is that really correct? Can I really call him out on that? Number seems very very high. Yes. Yeah. Like, how, how do you? When you're in a situation like that, how, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, my father, as I like to say, has never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So a lot of times we would, I think as children, we always used to believe everything he said. And then as we got older, especially as I got married, my husband was like, that's not entirely correct. It's like, wait, what? Um, yeah, people, people who say things with a lot of authority can be a little intimidating sometimes. And you know, I think at the end of the day, it's their story to tell. If they don't get it correct and it isn't going to harm anyone, you know, I think you can let it go. If it's something that they're saying that you think is fundamentally wrong and people are listening to the conversation and are going to be taking that and it's going to be hurtful or harmful to them, it might be worth it might be worth correcting. Quick Google search. But there's something with confidence, you know, without we don't do politics on the show, but there have been politicians known to do this where they're up on stage and they just have so much confidence and some of the things that come out of their mouths are just flat out like untrue. And people don't seem to care. It's just the, the confidence and the bravado and the crowds cheering and I get that politics is its own beast, but do you think many people are, are more captivated by energy and enthusiasm uh, than what's actually coming? <laughs> I'm coming back to that. Yeah, I do. I do. I absolutely do. Well, what did I just say about my father? Like We joke about it, but it's absolutely true. I think that Confidence does give you a lot of runway. Um, hopefully, you use it for good and not for bad, which I think when we come into politics can be, um, depending on which side of the fence you're on, that can be seen in either way. But I absolutely do think that giving giving off confidence and showing confidence makes people le believe you and follow you. And that is one of the benefits of being a confident person. But again, I think you have to use that in the best way you can because a lot of people don't have the confidence that they want to have in life. And if they see someone with confidence, they go to you to try to figure that out. I mean, I wrote Claim Your Confidence because there were so many people who asked me that question, right? I am a confident person. And so during the Q&As for The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, there was always someone who wanted to ask me about confidence or imposter syndrome. And ultimately, that's why I started writing the book, because I do see it as an issue that a lot of people don't have it, especially post-COVID, especially young girls and young boys in, the, in this world of social media. Can you, last question on the misplaced confidence, I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by it. Given your expertise and experience, can you spot it? I have a really good sense of people who are not telling the truth. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I'm a very confident person. That's the next question. What is it? How do we know? You know, it's honestly, I'll tell you what it is. What I've always found is if someone is not telling you the truth, their eyes are shifting because they're searching for an answer to a question that they don't have at the tip of their tongue. 
So a lot of times, if you're watching someone who's making something up, their eyes will be going, I think it's to the top left, but just watch it the next time. You know, someone's not telling the truth. I'm not a professional polygraph. Well, I will call searching for the searching for the answer. So, I, you know, we're doing, my wife and I are, Colleen are doing the, the circuit like you are for our book. And so we're going through the same interviews and there are a lot of statistics I have to memorize because, you know, it's a health book. And so I find myself doing that all the time. It's not because I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm lying, but I have to go search for, okay, which study is this? Okay, it's the 45% and the 25%. And so I find myself doing that all the time. That, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, you're searching for something, but luckily, as I said, since you're a confident person, you're searching and you're going to use it for good and not for evil. <laughs> but I really can't tell, like I can, I can be in a conversation with someone and ask them a question point blank. And I'm like, you are absolutely lying to me right now. And I can tell. Is it usually a ta- like the eye shifting or uh, a, t- a tick or, or something, a movement? Very small. It's usually eye shifting and then it's something in the face. It's like maybe their lips kind of change. I, I can't explain it, but I can tell you almost immediately if someone is not telling the truth, including my children, which is very helpful. Oh, that's very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting because my third child is very good at and not telling the truth. And sometimes I'm like, wait a second, I really can't tell. So I'm gonna have to hone that skill even more, I think. So coming, you know, you mentioned children and, and Zoom and, and kids and how important this is. Seems like they're fundamentally different building confidence in real life, in a real world situation versus what we're doing right, ha- right now on, on a, a laptop. Do you think, well, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. Can you, can you, one seems easier than the other. Yes. One seems easier than the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And are there, you know, something I I remember reading, I think it was in the wall street journal, how in the world of zoom, although I know people are going back to work, there were, you know, people had, you know, were, were spending more time on uh, makeup or everything above the shot, like trying to build even procedures. Like I think there was a boon in plastic surgery, certain procedures that were very heavy on the face versus the rest of the body. Uh, and, but it's a completely so different ball game building confidence while we're doing this. I think they're different versus in real life, face to face standing next to someone. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. The zoom culture. One thing that I, often say to people when I have only met them on Zoom, I'm 5'11". I'm very tall and I'm always in heels. So being tall has kind of always been my thing. I've been tall my whole life. I love being tall. And it's a really interesting thing because I tell people, like, by the way, when we meet in person, I just want you to know I am a giant. (laughs) And they're like, oh my God. And the, the couple of times that I haven't told people, people are like, can't believe how tall you are. And I was like, I know it's kind of part of who I am. And it's an interesting part of life because that's what Zoom takes away from us. It takes away from the the fact that someone is very petite and compact or someone is very large. And therefore, as a result of that, you know, doesn't do X, but does this. And I think a lot of times, especially with Zoom during COVID, you would learn a lot about people and they would be telling you the story of, you know, something that they did when they were a child and it made no sense until you met them in person. You were like, oh, now I get it because of X. Um, so when I tell stories about basketball and volleyball, people are like, oh, that's because Lydia is so tall. This makes more sense now. You would never hear me tell a story 
about being a gymnast because I don't have any of those stories because I grew out of that, I think, by the time I was 10. So that was never a sport that I was going to be able to play. And I do think that that's a large part of life these days. Like we have to tell the story of who we are. And a lot of times it's a lot harder in person than it is on a Zoom camera. Well, you're speaking to six foot seven and Colleen, my wife is 5'11", so you're speaking our language. <laughs> I feel like this is a, a separate, we will have a separate podcast called Being Tall, because that's another part of life. You know, there, there was one time I, I, I was in college in New York at a bar, and there was a, I guess there was a, maybe this is a thing now, I really, I totally forgot about it, because it's been, I don't know, 25 plus years. Uh, there was like a, a tall club. And it was for, it was like a meetup. It was the men had to be over 6'2 and the women 5'10. That's amazing. I did not get the call for that. And, then, and I was there with my friends. They're like, do you want to join? I'm like, what? What are you like? This is a thing? That is really funny. I actually had a, I had a very similar um, moment in my career where a woman on my team was quite tall as well. She was almost six feet tall. And we went into a meeting and this gentleman was pitching um, his company and he was probably six, eight or six, nine. He was quite tall. And um, about halfway through the conversation, we kind of wrapped up what we were going to talk about. He's like, so have you guys always been tall? And then we ended up talking about that for longer than we did about what we were talking about with him for his business. And we all stayed in touch afterwards. And we referred to him as tall Nick, never just Nick after that. It was always tall Nick, but it was so funny. I mean, I guess it's like, you know, it's a commonality. It is interesting to be tall. It was funny. They were like, do you want to be part of, I'm like the club, but I'm part of, it's called the basketball team in college. Like I don't need it. Like, (laughs) well, for some of us who are not good at basketball, as you heard from my earlier career, I would have been thrilled to join the tall club. You know, so, so coming back, Again, I, I've only so I've only been to one auction, and it was a charity auction. And I was just so impressed with the auctioneer, the way he, the humor, the way he commanded attention, uh, cheer point, the way he successfully sold things that people clearly did not want. He he, he still <laughs> it, it was it was very impressive. Uh, I'm like what what makes for you you've touched on humor i'm curious what makes a bad auctioneer and what makes a good auctioneer? you know i think the good we count on but like what's what makes a bad auctioneer oh it's so interesting that you're asking this so this by the time this podcast comes out this will have happened but i'm actually launching an auctioneering agency in the next couple of weeks um because i have seen this so many times and i often hear so many times about the bad auctioneer and that is never an experience that a nonprofit should have. You should always have a good auctioneer up there because ultimately that's the only person who can make money for you after the event starts. So what makes a bad charity auctioneer? It's somebody who doesn't read the room. You know, somebody who gets up there and is spouting numbers and not engaging the crowd and is starting too high. You know, that's a fundamental mistake that I've seen at charity auctions so many times where the auctioneer gets out in front of a room of a thousand people and says, I'm going to start the bidding on this trip for $20,000. And guess what happens in a room of a thousand people? There are probably three people who are interested in that trip and two of them are left at this point and the other 998 start talking. So you've lost the room, literally have lost the room in the first three seconds. I'm like, better to start it as low as you possibly can and fly up there You'll get you'll get to twenty thousand if you need to get there, but don't start it high ever. So can you tell? Because I, I remember from the, from this one event I went to, there I forget what what they were what they were 
the specific item they were auctioning, but there were a few people who were in a dogfight and, and one eventually, you know, it was something ridiculous. Like they went way above and beyond. I'm curious, are you able to identify that person if, if there is that? Yes. Talk <laughs> to me about that. So, well, what happens sometimes is there is an outlier who waits until the very end who jumps in. But let's say we're down to two people. I can nine times out of 10 tell you who's going to win it because of body language. What happens is people will be going for it. And then one of them will start to sort of like hesitate. So I'm going to, I'm going to say 20,000 charity auctions rarely reach this level in New York, but let's just pretend it's 20,000 and we get to the end. There are two bidders, 19, $20,000. So the gentleman on my left were at $20,000. Sir, would you like 21? And I see the gentleman who's at 21 or the woman who's at 21 hesitate, which to me means they're going to stop. So my job now is not to worry about the bidder who's going to win. My job is to push the underbidder so that the bidder will keep going. And that's done by calling out certain things, reminding them of anniversaries and birthdays and parties and things that they may not necessarily remember that they're going to need to buy for. And, oh, did I mention the nonprofit that we're raising money for? And how great will it be when you're in this gorgeous house in Mexico that all of these kids are also going to get school lunches as a result of that bid? pushing and pushing and pushing, and then eventually, hopefully getting it up three or four more bids until that person drops out and you've raised another $10,000. So essentially, I think you're touching on now the psychology of persuasion. It is. Absolutely. How do you get there in your everyday life when, whether it's your colleague or a spouse or a friend or a child, when, when, you know, unfortunately you have to, not that it's a bad thing, but sometimes you just have to flat out try to persuade someone. Yeah. I think persuasion, I go back to you catch more bees with honey. I mean, my life is a series of no's that I can turn into a yes, simply because I just keep asking the question in different ways with a smile on my face. You know, in charity auctioneering, the sky is always blue. There's never anything negative. There's never anything bad. And I truly believe that that's the way that I approach most things in life. Someone's like, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, well, I can't do it right now, or I can't do it in 30 seconds. And then that'll make them laugh. And then there's an entry point. I'm like, can I talk to you about why I can't do that right now? Would you mind just answering that question for me? And then asking the question a couple of different ways until I get the yes. A lot of times people can be persuaded because no, unless it's a hard and fast, like, you know, shoplifting is a no, like you can't shoplift period under sentence, but there are 30 other things that you can do that you might possibly be able to do if you can shift the person's thinking like, oh, you can't do this at this time, but why? Why is it this time? Is that like a hard and fast rule or did we kind of make this up? Like, could I just come in? I know it's 5.58 and you close at six, but I'll be super fast, like crazy fast. Like you've never seen anyone so fast. And then they're like, okay, I can't handle this anymore. Just come in. See what I'm saying? That's a good one. The store is closing. What about the speeding ticket? Oof, speeding ticket's hard, honestly, because I've always been taught to be very respectful of the law. My dad was a lawyer. Um, I did try once to get out of a speeding ticket. It did not work. I just told the gentleman I had to go to the bathroom really badly. And he's like, well, I'll follow you to the gas station. <laughs> and he did. And when I came out, I had a ticket. So luckily, I've only received one ticket in my life. And then my father was so upset that I've never done it again. So I learned that lesson. He took my car away. Um, that was how upset he was. So so. On the subject of lessons, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice in your 20s, what advice would that be? Well, I would definitely say not to be such a workplace gossip because I really loved being a workplace gossip in my 20s and I don't think it gets you anywhere. So that would be my advice, not only to my 20-year-old self, but also to anyone who's out there in the working world. Like, Focus on your work. Don't worry about interpersonal drama. In fact, the best thing you can do if you're working in an office is be friends with everyone and don't try to take sides because at the end of the day, 
sands always shift and you never know who's going to get to the next promotion first. So it does not behoove you to become like a warring faction in a corporation. That is a straight road to failure. Um, but also I would say to myself, you know, just care less. Like I wish the person who, remember when I told you about the eye roll on Instagram, I wish that I'd had that, I'd been able to have that reaction 20 years ago. Because there were so many things that were said over the course of my career that I just took to heart and they just wounded me so deeply. And now I'm like, it's just part of what it is. You know, it's part of part of the journey. And in closing, for anyone listening who's saying, all right, need to work on my confidence. One, I'm going to go buy your book, which I encourage everyone to do. Uh, what are what are the, say, three things someone should do in their everyday life to to work work that muscle? Well, first of all, believe that you're worth it. That is the first thing. Like you have to believe that you deserve the life that you want to live, that it's not up to anyone else. The second thing I would say is start doing things that make you uncomfortable. Like I say, it's a chapter in the book, get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Like try things that you are scared of. And if it doesn't work out, it's not that deep. It's your life. Things don't always work out. Just keep trying. And the third thing, more than anything, is believe in yourself more than anybody else around you. Get yourself great friends who support you, surround yourself with amazing people, but know that you're the only person who's really gonna be able to be confident if you believe in yourself. Well said, Lydia, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Jason. 